Welcome everyone, this is uh, Kyle Reed and I'm here with Chad Vale. This is episode two of NEPA Inspired. Uh, we are super excited for today's guest. Um, most of you guys that take a listen to this will know the name. Uh, most people know him by the kid. Uh, we're here to welcome uh, Jimmy Hedis on today's podcast. How are we doing, Jimmy? Doing good. Thanks again for having me. Uh, Listen to the first one. I know Jamie's pretty well, and uh, I was glad to have the opportunity. Well, we were super excited. I know uh, when we first asked you, you were, you, were, you were a little iffy about it, but I know a little persuasion, a little twist on the arm made it happen here. Yeah, talking, you know, talking about myself isn't one of my favorite things, so... Uh, We'll ease into it. S- sounds familiar, right, Chad? Yeah, that's why we brought beer. Yes, <laughs> that definitely helps. Take the edge off. Um, so, Jimmy, uh, when you first started, like, childhood-wise, were you a martial artist? Were you a karate guy? Were you a wrestler? Like, how did you start your journey-wise? Um, well, it started with, I loved Three Ninjas, the old, cheesy 90s movie. Hell yeah. Um, Absolutely. Hell yeah. It was... <laughs> One of my favorite, watched it a ton. I liked all the old kung fu movies, Street Fighter. I was obsessed with martial arts. But being a rambunctious little kid, when I asked my parents to actually take the classes, they thought it was going to make me into a terror. Um, So I stuck to the more traditional sports, football, uh, track. And uh, I did wrestle for a year. Um, I was awful at wrestling. And... (coughs) I thought it was so bad, I thought it was such a curse, but being bad at it actually helped me to start jiu-jitsu. Um, I was very unathletic and almost uh, you know, weak. I lifted, I did everything, um, but just physically I wasn't uh, a big force, you know? And just like everyone else, they wanna be, you know, tough, you know, you want your young man, you wanna uh, establish yourself. Yes, 100%. Uh, so I knew my route was going to be uh, to find a, a, a common niche. So uh, wrestling, I remember sucking and asking the coach <laughs> why I suck or I particularly sucked at a certain move called the double leg, which is a, one of the staples of wrestling. And uh, when I asked him how I could get better at it, he said, you need to lift more. And uh, that sucked. I hated that. <laughs> and uh, I remember I started jiu-jitsu. Well, first I started boxing from 14 to 16. And uh, I loved that. It was great. Uh, kind of some throwback names. Uh, Murad Elbada was he was the king at Odyssey Boxing at the time. Real good, phenomenal, real technical. And the coolest thing to me starting boxing was he would take the time, show me technique, show me what I'm doing, showing how to train. And uh, I probably didn't seem a lot to him, but to me, 14-year-old, uh, that really got me into the martial arts, you know, and that that meant a lot to me, um, and it was great. I loved boxing for the longest time, um, but having that that need for some kind of martial art, uh, the one I, for more. Yes, uh, I tried other martial arts. Um, I tried. I remember trying taekwondo, and uh, the one thing about uh, you know football, wrestling, and then boxing. They're tough, they're gritty, 
And uh, what you could do, it's, it's always trial and error. They teach you something and then you apply it in a live setting. Uh, the Taekwondo school I went to, not going to mention any names, but it was very um, philosophical. You know, this will work if the guy punches you, just take our word for it, don't try it out. And there was no sparring, there was no physicality to it, and I hated it. Um, luckily, my uncle knew a guy that ran a karate slash jiu-jitsu school. So when I was 16, I went over there, and I remember seeing them do jiu-jitsu. It's kind of when Hoist Gracie in the first UFC yep. came out. And I thought it was the coolest thing imaginable. Uh, it was, uh, how do I explain it? It was a f very fun, laid-back form of wrestling. It was uh, very technical. And what drew me to it is I remember the first day of jiu-jitsu. 16 years old, very scrawny, um, semi-athletic, if I'm being optimistic. Uh <laughs> And you're going in the adult class. So you're going against, you know, police officers, you know, giant weightlifters, everyday, you know, average Joes, but grown men. And uh, they're keeping it playful, but they're also trying to strangle you. <laughs> so I remember after maybe two classes, um, I did very good with it, just naturally. Um, but I, I remember asking the coach at the time I said you know how do I get this move do I need to be stronger to do it and very similar to the conversation I had with my old middle school wrestling coach he said no why would you want to do that and then he systematically broke down here's what you do if your opponent does this if he does that here's the counter and for me being kind of nerdy and not like an alpha male or anything like that a way to uh you know, systematically become a better fighter or, or more combative was where it was. Um, the nerd in me was just screaming, you know? Absolutely. The technical details is what you wanted. You just want, didn't want some straight answer of lift more, be stronger, be faster. You wanted to know the why and the how of why it worked. A hundred percent. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the tip of the iceberg. Once I knew there was the information out there. It was kind of like a human form of chess that I could study and uh, find out more. It was complete uh, OCD at that point. It was, uh, it was all chips in. I could not get my brain to stop thinking about it. Uh, like a big worry was at night, I could not stop thinking of uh, here's what was a counter. Did I get caught in any guard passes? Did I get caught in any submissions? And my brain would just go and search until I found the information. And then when I found that, what's a counter? So um, what helped me tremendously about jiu-jitsu was it was at the time where a lot of people in this area get into trouble. A lot of my friends were, you know, doing some, you know, Stuff everyone does. Teenage you know? stuff. Yeah, drinking, drugs, stuff like that. And God's honest truth, I didn't care at all for it. I was 100% obsessed with this. And it was, it kind of took over uh, my, my, all my thinking, all my time. So it was, it was great. You know, that's how I started. 
I started with the boxing. Well, definitely failed wrestling. <laughs> and uh, failed it hard. And then boxing, I love that. I did great with that. And then jujitsu was something I really took to. It, it just seemed to make sense to me. Definitely. And for those of you guys, for the jujitsu wise, it is like uh, a massive chess game. And no matter who you go with, every opponent is different. Every opponent has a different style. Every opponent has a different way of doing things. So you're constantly learning no matter what match you're in or no matter what opponent you're with, you're always going to take something away from that match or that, that session. So like at what point, 16, 17, 18, you're training jujitsu now and you have your boxing skills. At what point does it go, I want to lock myself in a cage? Or who, like, at what like, because I understand, because I've been there. I went through the, that thought process of, like, all right, it's time for me to, to lock myself in a cage and really test my ability level. Like, was it your own personal decision, or were there coaches that kind of, like, led you that way, or family members that kind of led you that way? Well, it was a definitely personal decision. Um, something about fighting, for me, was it scared the crap out of me. I was, uh, it was just something I always Feared. So that's what kind of drew me to learn the martial arts, not because I had some ego or anything like that. And that's why I think I was so receptive towards the technique was I came in there with an attitude was I don't know this uh, and it does scare me. So I want to understand it. So jujitsu went great. I was doing great. Got my blue belt real early, was winning a bunch of local tournaments and it just gave me so much confidence. And from watching mixed martial arts, there was no tournaments one week. And I said, you know what? Maybe it's time to see if this stuff works in a live combat set setting. So uh, I remember it wasn't legal in Pennsylvania. So I scheduled it in, I remember it was called, uh, it was in Egg Harbor, New Jersey. And uh, I remember my first fight, Mike Zoberman. And uh, I was looking frantically online to find any information. What does he look like? You know, is, is he a boxer? Is he a wrestler? Because back in the day with mixed martial arts, you had a primary style. You know, no one really trained in everything. So you, you were either a boxer, a wrestler, a kickboxer, you know. Um, this guy was a purple belt in jiu-jitsu which was ahead of me but um I was pretty good at it I wasn't really too too worried but um it started I remember the fight started in in New Jersey and seeing the first fight live because in the gym setting I didn't really do too much sparring um so the first fight happened and these guys are throwing hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was 17 or 18 at the time. Again, scrawny. And uh, I just remember <laughs> seeing if I could leave, but I didn't drive there. My coach drove, so I was like, well, I'm in yeah, I'm here. I'm committed, I guess. <laughs> yes. I'm for this. So it, it used to anger me uh, being afraid of combat. And... Uh, I thought it was just me. I thought, I'm so afraid of this. Like, I'm mentally weak. And it wasn't until, you know, the end of my fight career where you see all these big names. And the big trick is everyone's afraid, you know? Absolutely. Um, some people have good poker faces. But first fight, I remember uh, just seeing if I could get out of there, you know? 
Turns out I couldn't, so I fought this guy, and I remember the first time he hit me, it it was like someone hit the reset button on on a, a, a PlayStation. I just remember forgetting everything, and I thought, man, I gotta take this guy to the ground, and luckily I was able to take him down quick, and I think I submitted him in, uh, I think, 30 or 40 seconds, but uh, the adrenaline rush was... It was phenomenal. You know, the thrill of victory was was excellent. And even more than that was I was in a fight. I did well. And uh, it was crazy to me because the stuff that we'd worked on in the gym translated so well. It was so good. And uh, it, it was kind of reassurance. All the obsessing, all the learning, all the training in the gym. And then it works. So then you, you, you get the... The affirmation that what you're doing is good. Definitely. Um, so for most people that also that don't know, like once you turn professional, you're pretty much your amateur t- career or your amateur record kind of like disappears. Most people, you can't find it, like things of that sort. So for me to find like any recon on your amateur career is pretty hard. So, um, but saying that, like you had a very, very successful amateur career uh, that led you. It was a pretty quick though amateur career if, for, it was three, three or four fights, wasn't it? Something very quick. Uh, this is gonna make me sound old, but I think it was four or five. It's hard. It was. It yeah. wasn't a long-term amateur no. career because I know in Pennsylvania now it's only three fights. Yeah. Before you can go professional. It's always something that kind of confused me why people would have an illustrious amateur career. You know, that's like who's the fastest at running backwards. You know, no one really cares. Absolutely. Um, the whole point of an amateur. Division is so you get good, you get experience, and then you could turn professional, which is where all the good fighters were, and it's the way to get paid. Definitely. Um, so making after your amateur career, obviously when you decided to go professional, um, you obviously had to take your training level to a whole other level as a professional athlete, your training partners, um, things of that sort, even taking your camp to different like locations wise. Um, so kind of during that career, that, that path, who, who were your main training partners or who were you kind of surrounding yourself with? Um, I know there's a, a bunch of local guys that you surround yourself with. I'm a name drop like Joe Fye, Rex Harris, even your brother Chris, uh, Chris Hedis. Um, but you also went out of the state. So kind of like what part did they play in your, your journey or like success? Well, um, I started out of a small karate school and uh, there wasn't many takers to do MMA at the time. It was kind of perceived as, you know, blood sport, which I'm barbaric. very barbaric. And uh, it was the furthest from the truth, you know. It was, again, systematically there, although tough training, but it was very... Uh, skilled training and the guys we had were some of the best in the country out of this small karate gym no one would ever know and the problem at the time was in this area there was no coaches um all the coaches were for different disciplines uh whether they were from sport karate and they only did sport karate or they were cardio boxing coaches or whatever um finding coaches was the hardest thing about this area very hard um so what 
we had was we had a bunch of athletes. So I knew if I trained the athletes, they would be good. And then they were great training partners. So again, like some of the names you mentioned, uh, they all were athletically brought something different to the table. Uh, Rex Harris was a phenomenal wrestler, football player. You know, you teach him something, he learns it the first time. Joe Fi was, uh, uh, he did a, a, a crazy good Marine. He did a lot of tours overseas and strongest mental ability. You can tell him to run through a brick wall and it would be done. Uh, Chris was a phenomenal athlete. Uh, and then there was people who were very unathletic. Um, the one person I'm thinking of besides myself is Rich Gates, who had a phenomenal professional career. Um, when he walked into the door, uh, took to it immediately, very much like myself, but he was very unathletic. And if you see him nowadays, similar to myself, the athleticism built over time through the hard training. So we had uh, a, maybe about 10, 10 guys that were very tough, you know, and we would just train very hard, um, not hurting each other. But when we got to the point where we were competing at a national level or worldwide, we didn't have the big nice facility we didn't have a plethora of training individuals so what we had to do was we had to train harder than our opponents so it does take a, a toll on your body the strenuous activity but um, same thing nowhere else could you find a small karate school and I was coaching at the time but I was also fighting and we would have guys fighting uh, you know, in Las Vegas, training again, I mean, fighting against people from Brazil, from Russia, all over. Um, and it was great. But uh, I wish we had more training partners, more coaches. And we were kind of like a, a unknown gym at the time. So it was hard to get people in. They still perceived us as uh, barbarians. But uh <laughs> Maybe they were right, you know. But. <laughs> At the time, maybe. But, yeah. I mean, locking yourself and you guys down in the basement probably. Yeah. And just training in the in, in the dungeon or whatever you want to call it. That was, and then a bunch of grown men walking up from downstairs. Couple swollen lips, couple swollen eyes. Yeah, I'm sure that, that, that probably shoe fits some days. 100%. <laughs> and uh, the people that lasted, the people that excelled were the main... A contributing factor it was not athleticism it wasn't uh, any one physical ability it was lack of ego and determination um, the people that have an ego in our sport it I mean you you have the gym I could tell you you know probably 10,000 different instances where someone comes in usually a sleeveless shirt you know <laughs> I'm not saying they definitely had a, a tribal tattoo but <laughs> Um, a couple UFC shirts. Yes. And they wear that same thing when they go to Planet Fitness. Yes. <laughs> curls for days. But in the gym, we had, you know, average everyday people that just wanted to take the classes. And they were silent killers. You know, they were people who probably bag your groceries. You know, you say hello to it was your neighbor. And if you fought this person, you would get choked unconscious. Um <laughs> 
the one thing we had this 16 year old girl in the gym she was very small um, not particularly athletic not big and for some reason when we would have new people they would always give her the same speech like oh honey don't worry like I'll take it easy on you I won't hurt you and then I would see this 16 year old petite woman choke these grown men out in probably 30 seconds and you can see their brain rewiring you know you could see the short circuit and they would never come back you know uh, so the big thing we had going for us was we had no ego a lot of ball busting one another absolutely you gotta have that yes. you gotta have fun while you're doing it if you're not having fun yes. what's the point of doing it and there was no hierarchy there was no one above anyone so it doesn't matter if I was coaching, I would get my balls busted. If you were brand new, you would get your balls busted. Mm -hmm. And it was the best thing mentally for everyone. You know, a big family. Yes. And uh, it was great. Uh, the best time is after a hard training session, ball busting afterwards. We would do it for hours. <laughs> I, I, I've been around a couple of those. Yes. I know exactly how that feels. Now, um, just like with any other sport, I'm going to show your mental mindset not only just your physical mindset, transitioning from an amateur to a professional definitely has to take take its toll. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you have this, there has to be a switch from an amateur athlete to a professional athlete. Kind of what helped you stay mentally focused? Was it just because you wanted to be better and you wanted to be the best, or was there really something that really drove you? It was a mixture. Um, number one, the OCD was still strong at this point. Uh, it was... Uh, continuous mental battle to not only get good at this form of chess but dominate the other people that were trying to get good it was not only learning the moves but learning them better than everyone else learning the counters all that it was very cerebral for me uh, reading books non-stop watching videos I remember I would see a lot of it was in Japan Japanese or Russian and I would watch those instructionals not knowing what they were saying but just kind of taking Picking little the details things. yes uh, it was a full-blown obsession and uh, I loved it um, being a successful amateur when you turn pro it literally means nothing uh, you can be 0 and 7 as an amateur or you could be undefeated as an amateur when you start your pro career everyone starts with a clean slate so if you're the best amateur in the world and you're the worst, when you're pro, no one cares. Um, it's kind of like um, when you see little kids, you know, playing in a, a peewee sport. Yes, they keep scoring. Yes, you want them to do good. But how good they are then doesn't really matter. It all matters when they get older. Make that transition. Like that. Yes. So the pressure of doing well as a pro is reapplied. It's kind of like that same wave of emotions. So first uh, pro, uh, I think it was finally legal in Pennsylvania, and I fought in the ice box. In I was just going to say, definitely was up at the ice box. Yes. And uh, Bobby Gorham, he was a kickboxer from Endicott, New York. And uh, I did zero research because I found myself, if I do too much research, I would watch guys fight, and I'd say, man, he hits harder. He does this, and I was kind of giving him too much compliments. So I decided to not just do any research for that fight. And uh, luckily it went good. Uh, I think a submission in the first minute. But I'll say most of your first at least four or five pro fights in the beginning were pretty quick-winded. Yes, my am my all my amateur fights, and I think 
first eight pro fights were over, I think, in less than a minute. Um, I attribute that to social anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) I used to hate being in big crowds, uh, the noise, all that stuff. I just, I would get kind of a fight or flight uh, mentality. So once you're locked in the cage, the only way you get out is to dispose of your opponent, you know? So everything in my head is like, man, look at all these people. You're surrounded. Like, let's get out of here. So my body would be like, okay, well, we'll take it over from here. We'll get this guy over quick, and then you can just get out. So That's a great mentality. Oh, my God. It's a successful one. Holy crap. You know, you never hear the benefits of social anxiety, but maybe people need to fight more. You know? Lock yourself in a cage and see how fast oh, you can get out. Oh, you know what? Your body just like, you know what? We'll cover from here. And then... Like, the big running joke was people always be like, oh, where are you going for your after party? You know, what are you doing? I'm like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to my couch. Yes, leave me alone. I did my social thing for the day. I'm done, you know? Perfect. Absolutely. So, um, getting the call to the UFC. I mean, that's most fighters, like, that's their dream. Like, that's the biggest organization in the world, um, followed by Bellator right now. But I don't even think Bellator was around at that point. Or if they were, they were pretty small. I mean, getting that phone call, like, take us through that, like, where you were, or, like, what went through your mind? Did you, like, hang up the phone on them and then call them back and say, I'm sorry, like, I was shocked? I wanted to throw something in here quick, too. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the difference between, or what, you know, if you're a pro, mm-hmm. who is sanctioning those fights if you're a pro as opposed to being in the UFC or 1FC or Bellator? Like, you know, you said you're a pro and you get a call to the UFC, really who was sanctioning the fights before that and who's you know keeping track of your your pro record and everything yeah that's a great question and we're going to kind of rewind as an amateur um a lot of the venues i would fight at were less than reputable reason being is some of them were in out of states virginia wherever and they would literally take a stripper pole down put up a cage and you would fight there also, some of the amateur events, they would pull guys off the bar stool and ask if they wanted to fight. So, it, you know, it doesn't matter how scared you are. If you, you know, if you look around and, you know, the stripper pole is being taken down and you're fighting there, you're like, well, I probably got this, you know. <laughs> uh, and then when you turn pro, uh, it's a lot more official. Uh, there's, uh, there's setups like you have opponent maybe eight weeks before your fight you do research on. They have usually an extensive background in in wrestling or or, uh, some kind of striking art. And it makes it a lot more professional. You know who you're fighting. You know where. uh, The medicals are are done long before the fight, which is is good. Uh, The difference is, I would say, uh, your first job resume compared to your last job resume you know when your first job resume you're like well i shouldn't do this in crayon but it's going to get sent anyway (laughs) your last one's all typed up all the i's are dotted the t's are crossed Uh, as an amateur you're kind of just winging it and so is the promotion as a pro it's usually a little bit more uh strenuous with the paperwork and the medical and stuff like that definitely um, and we'll get to the process of kind of like the, the pre-fight uh, of leading up to some of them fights. And I have some of the names here that I'm going to bring back some memories for you. But definitely going back to that, that phone call now. Like, do they call you or do they send you an email? Or do they send you a letter in the mail like, hey, we want you to fight? Like, 
Did Dana White call you? Well, I actually was lucky enough to receive not one call, but two. Unfortunately, the first time I got called, I think I was, again, disclaimer for the listeners, I am older now, <laughs> so uh, some of my facts might be off by a little bit, but I think I was 6-0 and at the time, and they called me for uh, a short notice fight, less than a week. I was going to fight, I forget who, uh, but the promotion I was fighting for locally wouldn't let me out of their contract which was a real dick move on their part. Um, but they kind of looked at it only for themselves. So I couldn't get out of the contract. So what that did and what the UFC recruiter told me was, well, if you win a couple more fights, we'll get you back in here. But unfortunately, if you lose, we probably won't take you. And this was right before uh, I took a fight against a guy named George Shepard. Um, and my natural fight weight was at 145. And this guy was a 170 pounder. And this guy was a pro. He fought over in Russia in M1. And he was strong as an ox. But how I got in, in that predicament was my opponent at 145 backed out. And at that point, I was fighting every month or every other month just to make money to support the constant training. Well, I... I I needed the money and they said your opponent backed out at 145 well me being full of piss and vinegar told the promoter whatever find me anyone I don't care what weight it is uh, I'll go as high as as 70 or 85 I said I need to fight so he said okay and uh, I got the call to go to the UFC the promoter denied me so then he tells me, you're fighting this guy named George Shepard at 170. And of course, I went right to the computer to see him. And I just remember saying out loud, shit. <laughs> it was like the long drawn out one, uh, you know. What and have I done to my, what, what, what hole did I dig yeah. now? So it was a whole, I, that was probably the most pressure before a fight. Because I was very easygoing and relaxed before my fights uh, uh, like reggae was my big was my walkout song I used to just be calm we used to joke and I remember for that fight I was like man if I lose the UFC is gonna take me this guy is a tank you know and uh, I remember it was the first fight that went out of the first round and luckily I got the submission uh, but I had a fight I think two more times after that and then the UFC called again uh, I fought a guy locally named Jacob Kerwin who was real good um, I think he was out of Maryland and he was a big rising star the UFC was going to take him I was a big rising star at the time we fought at the arena in Wilkesbury mm -hmm. and the whoever won was going to get the UFC contract allegedly no one knew for sure uh, I remember beating him and then I think we fought on a Saturday. I think I was at my favorite bar, Hops and Barley's. I was, I gained about 15 pounds, all of chicken wings <laughs> and beer because I couldn't eat what I wanted to drink during, during the camp. And I remember being extremely overweight and just in those three days, you know, just uh, absolutely. From cutting to, yes. to just having a little bit of freedom, yes. you, you immediately put it right back on. I think I was at Hops 
eating and they called me and they asked if by the weekend I could fight Alex Caceres at 145. And I said, yeah, no problem at all. And I remember getting the check. Uh, everyone's like, where are you going? I'm like, I got to run. So I literally that night, belly full of beer and wings, I remember running miles and miles just to burn that off. Uh, but I had a grin from ear to ear. I remember being so happy and so energetic that it wasn't, I would have do. I would have done. You would have cut off an arm if you had 100%, to. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, that that's a phone call that most people, I mean, that's like even getting a call to like the NFL draft or the NBA draft. Like it's, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So you're obviously not going to let that slip away for a second time no. because of your own personal choice this yes. time. Um, so, um, pro career, you went 11 and three. Mm-hmm. 11 and three, 11 submissions, one decision, and then three losses would have been three or two knockouts and one decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many fights did you have in actively in the UFC? Uh, six. Six. Now, when you were active in the UFC, did you at that point, this was a whole nother level. This was like going from NCAA to NFL. Did you start traveling more to different camps? I know particularly you went to out to Donald Cerrone's for a little bit, if I'm not mistaken, right, mm-hmm. down to Cowboys Camp uh, yes. out in, the, uh, where is he, Nevada? Uh, right? Yeah, New Mexico. Or New Mexico. Yeah. And got to ride horses and all that stuff with Donald Cerrone. That's awesome. So did you start, like, was that, like, part of, like, your camp-wise? Was that, like, one of your guys you looked towards? And how did you get to him? Well, my uh, manager at the time, Mike Malist, um, he was a phenomenal manager. And he got in touch with Cowboys people, and he got me there. Uh, I was there for two months and it was right in the start of Cowboys Ranch and talk about culture shock you know (laughs) there I'm at which was at the time the biggest and most uh, notorious MMA team which was the uh, Team Jackson Jackson Winklejohn and I'm living with and training with Donald Cerrone and Leonard Garcia who was massive at the time and they are nice as pie. Absolutely nice. Uh, couldn't say enough nice things. Like, helped me tremendously. The big thing, that was my first, uh, you know, travel across the... the Official camp, camp, yes. camp. And they were so nice. And you get to train with people you see on TV, people you idolize. And once I was able to be like, man, I'm just as good as these guys, you know, like this is great to see. And something else great was how nice they were, uh, how respectable, because you see a lot of what the TV and the media wants you to see. You know, a lot of these guys acting, you know, crazy and looking for attention, you know, and I would say 90% of them are, are nice, respectable you know, as long as there's no cameras, they're just nice and Just an average Joe. Yes. Um, but with Cowboy, it was great. It was, you know, he's just as wild and crazy as people think he is. And uh, Leonard was very chill. And Leonard, I think at, at times, the nickname was Bad Boy. And I'm like, oh, man, like, I hope this guy's not a dick. And he was so nice. Uh, so it was good. They taught me so much. I was able to help them a little bit with the judo because they didn't really have much of that there. But... Uh, it was great. It was a great learning experience and uh, loved it. Definitely. Um, speaking kind of about your judo, like that is what I feel like in the UFC you made your staple with. 
Um, I know it, it went on record, I think, at one point that you had the most judo throws in a match um, ever. And I think Joe Rogan has even given you, given you a couple shout-outs about your judo-wise. Um, did you feel like that became, like, a prominent part of your, your game, like, that you knew that you had in your back pocket over most people that you stepped across the ring from? Yeah, um, I fought a couple judo black belts, but the the big thing that helped me was uh, I taught myself most of it. That's the crazy part that most people don't know is you're like a self-taught judo whiz over here. Yeah, I taught myself most of it, and it was, uh, again, just thanks to that OCD, and uh, a big staple of that was Richie Gates. We would watch moves, we would study them, we would decide how it could apply to a no-gi or MMA setting, and uh, we would drill it until it became muscle memory. If you, if we were sleeping standing up and someone woke us up quick, they were going to get judo thrown. That's, our muscle memory was just tremendous at that time. Um, so what helped me was instead of learning, you know, judo from someone wearing a gi with a, a lot of extensive rules, uh, I, I taught a lot of it to myself, so it was specifically designed with someone trying to punch me, you know? So that helped tremendously. Uh, later on, I was able to have uh, two real good coaches, uh, Tom McGuire, uh, who uh, trains at Scranton Mixed Martial Arts, and uh, Justin Flores. Um, Tom was the first one, and he was great because he was... Judo has a tremendous amount of rules, you know, from when to bow, to what grips you could take, to what throws you could do, to what submissions. And the one thing I always hated was how limited it is. And I told Tom, you know, I love doing it, but here's my goal. My goal is to translate this into mixed martial arts. And he said, you do whatever you want and I will help you achieve your goal. And he was phenomenal, very open-minded, very good. Uh, he does jiu-jitsu and no-gi himself now, and he was phenomenal. And then my second coach um, was Justin Flores. And Justin Flores is the judo or grappling version of Yoda, if you guys <laughs> ever watch Star Wars. He's the best grappler I ever went with. Um, phenomenal coach. And he absolutely ate my lunch the first time we <laughs> grappled. And at the time, I was pretty high up. And uh, you start to get a little, you know, cocky. And boy, did he, he just did things to me. And I'm just like, I don't even know what's going on. Lay so, out fetal position. Let oh, me just let man, me, let, let me curl yeah. up in this little ball and hopefully you leave me alone. Yeah, but he was phenomenal. He taught me so much and uh, just tremendous guy. So those guys were able to take what I taught myself, clean and polish it, and then add so much. Nice, definitely. Um, so kind of like some of the fights I was going through, kind of your your, your fight uh, record. Yeah, I'll take another one. Instead. Thank you. <laughs> Help me out here. I gotcha. Um, so uh, we said uh, Bruce Leroy, Alex uh, uh, Caceres, is that mm -hmm. exactly how you say it? That yeah. was your first one. I feel like the, the, the next big, one, big win on your thing uh, was Nam Pham. At this point, I remember watching this because I went to visit my buddy in college in New Jersey, and before we went out to do to hang out at some of the, the, his golf house and stuff like that, I was like, we can't leave. He was like, why? I was like, Jimmy the Kid Head is just fighting tonight. I was like, we got to watch the card first before we go out. And I remember watching him, and for a guy who, who stapled himself on judo and jujitsu, struck 
outstruck Numfam, which is probably one of the toughest dude at that point. Yeah, he was ripping through people at that time. And uh, I had training partners who were like, hey, who are you fighting? I'm like, oh, Nam fan. And I remember these people would be like, ah, oh, man, you'll, you'll, you'll get an easy fight next time. Like, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> I was like, fuck you, you know? Like, thanks for the sort of confidence. Yeah, so I remember, you know, you kind of take a mental note of those people. So, like, <laughs> after the fight, I was like, how's it going? You know what yeah, I mean? What's see, up? You see what happened there? Yeah, but Nam was a real nice guy. Phenomenally nice. Um, but the big thing... He had a bunch of videos on the internet at the time, and he was doing, like, these underground fights where he was knocking people silly. Like, he was knocking people out to where, like, they were legitimately snoring. Like, they would get knocked out, fall on the floor, and be snoring for three minutes. And I'm just thinking, like, man, like, I don't want, I don't want that, you know? <laughs> it's not nap time for Gosh. me. <laughs> I'm like, that looks so painful. Um, I had a great... Great camp for that. I think I was training in uh, Tom's River, New Jersey. Uh, big training partner I met in. in I was Mexico waiting to see how long until you brought this up. Was Chris McRae. And this guy was wild. And we were kind of like yin and yang. Chris was super outgoing, phenomenally athletic, um, and just like he would just get at it. And I was very quiet, reserved, antisocial, and very technical. So we would train, and we were polar opposites, and we would help each other tremendously. Um, well, he, uh, once we, I, I got to train with him, I was like, that's it. He's phenomenal. He's my guy. I need him cornering me in every fight, you know? Uh, he wasn't able to make the Caceres fight. Caceres fight was tough. Uh, I actually had my buddy, uh, the guy I fought as a pro, Jay Haas. He actually came and cornered me, and he was phenomenal help. It was kind of like the Apollo Creed Rocky thing. I ended up fighting him. Uh, I won. But he split me open good, and he was a phenomenal kickboxer, and my kickboxing sucked. He was so-so at jiu-jitsu, and mine was good. So he would come down and train, and we would kind of help each other. But he helped tremendously against Caceres' fight. The second fight, I'm like, Chris, I need you to come out for this. He's like, well, I'm actually training in Tom's River, New Jersey with Frankie Edgar and them. I'm like, that's only a three-hour ride. Like, you know, so I started training with him, and uh, oh, it was great. He's he's phenomenal. And uh, we he was a real good Greco-Roman wrestler, so he was able to show me grips and stuff that would work against Nam, who was primarily going to try to keep it standing. So I remember stuff he taught me, it just ended up working like a charm, you know, and uh, made the fight, you know, fairly easy. Absolutely. Um, and then we, we go to the Markage Brimage fight, um, which was, was that your first loss in the yeah, UFC? Yeah. Um, I remember do I remember also watching that one. Um, what was it like taking your first loss, like in front of the UFC, like at that level? Like that yeah. definitely is a a hard pill to swallow for professional athletes being able to like accept a loss and you came back for three more. Yes. Like instead of going underneath your bed and hiding, like yeah. that's definitely uh, an interesting situation to go through. Yes. And before I say, Oh, you learn so much and you do all this losing is awful. And, uh, especially on one of the biggest stages. Yes. And, uh, it, yeah, it was a blessing later on, but it, it sucked at the time. And, 
the high you get from winning is tremendous. It is absolutely one of the best feelings you get in the world. Now, adversely, the way you feel after a loss is the same exact feeling on the other end of the spectrum. So it, it sucked. Uh, I had a bunch of injuries before that fight, but it was one of those things where I felt untouchable. I'm like, who needs two good knees? You know what I mean? You. But Brimage had a great game plan, and he did phenomenal. You know, so it was, it was good. It definitely re-humble. I, I guess. Oh God! Was yeah. it like a humbling experience more than anything? Yeah, yeah. And the last one of your six that I want to bring up is uh, the Robert Whitford fight. And I actually watched your interview about. I watched a bunch of your interviews leading up to this to see uh, kind of how you how you talked about some of these fights. And for those of you guys that do research on on Jimmy or have seen anything about Jimmy, he might be the only fighter to talk highly about every one of his opponents after he's either been punched in the face for 20 minutes or just choked them out inside the ring. So um, if you ever want to fun- watch a funny video, he, he literally just talks with his head down about how great his opponent is and he respects him and things like that. So, But uh, you talk about your Robert Whitford fight, like... The, you, you you say you, he hit like a Mack truck. He he was a rising star. He was supposed to be like the next big thing, and you just coming off a loss. Like that's got to be a tough pill to swallow. Like this is the make or break for the UFC for you. Like you know what I mean. Like yeah. Luckily, my mentality um, towards fighting at the time was I loved to do it so much. It was a passion, not a sport. Yeah, it was never like a wake up and have to train. Um, My biggest hurdle through the week was Sunday was supposed to be rest day, and I would have to kind of detain myself to not train on Sundays. I loved it. It was it was a a passion obsession, and it was good. So when I lost, I was literally back in the gym Monday, you know, and I'm like, well. At least I get trained, you know, so it, it is what it is. So it was never a hard get back on the horse type thing. Like, was it depressing? Of course. You know, there was two days where, you know, you're just like, man, like, that sucks. What did I do wrong? Like, and then you see everything you did wrong, and then you get to go train, and everything's good in the world, you know? Um, the one good thing is, like, you're never going to win every fight. If you fight enough, you'll eventually lose. And... It was, I was to the point in the UFC where these guys are super athletes who also have amazing technique, you know, and I was never super athletic, but my technique was always great. So once, you know, someone was able kind of to do something to nullify the technique, that was my problem. So uh, thankfully, you know, did a lot of strength conditioning and stuff like that to kind of build the athleticism, which was great. But against Robert Whiteford, uh, what was great and something I'll remember always was the fight was in Manchester, England. And I always wanted to go to England, and uh, it was phenomenal there. It was so awesome. And uh, I was watching his fights, and he was just hitting guys. And even when they blocked, they were getting knocked out. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, what do you do? I'm doing everything right. You just got to get out of the way. And, like, my thing was, like, I'm like, I'm just going to grip my teeth, come forward. And if he hits me, like, hopefully he hurts his hand at some point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Bite down, chin down, and let's hope for the best. So uh, he also had a very extensive judo background. So I'm like, he's not going to fall for any of the tricks, anything like that. Um, Luckily he did, but... um, (laughs) I was going to say, it kind of went in your favor at that point. Yeah. um, 
he I think he had a lot of nerves. That was his first fight in the UFC, so I kind of exploited on that. Definitely. But he was great, strong, um, uh, heavy Scottish accent. Couldn't understand him too much, but <laughs> real nice guy. Hit like a Mack truck, and uh, he had a successful MMA career after we fought. Definitely. Um, now, leading towards the end of your uh, kind of UFC career, you uh, had some uh, medical issues along with some knee injuries. I know, um, was it uh, was it the Market Brimage fight your ear exploded, or was it the, no, that the, was, the Bermudez fight? That or was the, Diego Brandao. That was your last was, one? Yeah, the last one. Um, so kind of like what take us through your injuries that you kind of ton of injuries the main ones I should say Um, so the big thing people should know is when you're fighting um, whether you're pro amateur um, uh, most of us back in the day I would say maybe 70 to 80 percent didn't have health insurance Um, fun fact so a lot of injuries were held on with duct tape and super glue so And again, to kind of revert back to what uh, I said earlier, is all of us who were training were training at a small karate gym. And we were fighting people from big, tough names. Like, we were fighting the Jackson Winkle John fighters. We were fighting people from all over the world. So the way we won and what made us stand out was we would train harder. The negative side of that is your body takes more of a toll. So... At that point, I had one real bad knee. I heard it before the Marcus Brimage fight, and uh, looking back, I definitely didn't know a lot about, uh, you know, rehabilitation of the muscles and stuff like that. And of course, I was back to training Monday. So the bad knee became worse, and then that became a a, a definite reoccurring theme. Um, what actually? retired me was eventually the knee would completely tear tearing the ACL the MCL and the meniscus all at once Um, I tore the MCL previous to that twice Um, I had a bad rib injury and uh, a bunch of other things hard hard to remember Um, but the only one I get upset about is the ear I was just gonna say there's (sighs) literally an article that says like Jimmy says he can still fight as your ear is like if you don't Google Jimmy Hedges' exploded ear. I should have Googled that before this. Oh, yeah. God. It, it's bad. It's, if, if. It's rough. What. Diego Randall was, was great, phenomenal guy. Um, but the game plan for him, if you've ever seen him fight, is he, he goes at a fast pace and then he kind of wears out. So for that camp, the first round went exactly how he wanted it nonstop movement. Uh, and kept them pummeling, kept them scrambling. And the first round just went great, phenomenal. And uh, I remember I, I have cauliflower like a lot of fighters, and it's completely numb. It's when cartilage, when blood goes up to the ear and can't escape, your body per, uh, turns it into cartilage. So you get these real fashionable model S. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and... Um, now, when you were fighting, though, they weren't as fashionable. Now, people recognize what it is. Yes. You know, like like five, ten years ago, it wasn't as common. No, you, you no. look at some guy with like, cauliflower, he looked like he was a serial well, killer. So now, like, yes. you're sitting in a bar now, and you see somebody, somebody's mouthing off, and you look at his ears, it's like, I'm not fucking with that, too. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It definitely has some perks now, you know. But when I did get elbowed in it, it was the cartilage just ended up cracking. Um, I didn't feel it. 
and the blood was going behind my ear in front, so I didn't even see it. Um, but uh, my ear was completely fine. Uh, I know the pictures look bad. Uh, <laughs> the, the pictures look really bad. My ear was fine, and believe it or not. Yeah, they look horrible. Backstage. Are you looking at it oh right my now? God. <laughs> yeah. Backstage, I literally got four stitches. Just four. And the crappy thing was I didn't need antiseptic because there's no there's no feeling, it's just cartilage. But he had to take the pin for the needle and he had to get almost like a chisel hammer. Oh, to and get was it chiseling it to get it through the cartilage. But uh I couldn't believe they called the fight for four stitches. Um, if I could have signed a waiver, I would have let him rip it off, you know, because it was just going so well. Yeah. And it was so much work. And I remember being such a good camp and uh, a freak accident, like, you know, getting elbowed. Near. But it's just a fight game. You know, it is it's very similar to poker or something like that. You you have to deal, you know, the hand you're dealt. Absolutely. Um, and then so now we start moving. We move towards the end of your uh, UFC career and kind of like. What uh, what led to your retirement, or what led to your decision to to no longer fight and uh, I don't want to say join civilization, but join us as uh, <laughs> as regular uh, civilized people? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I loved fighting, but the injuries were piling and piling, and from I got to train all over the nation and got to see the fighters who retired when they should. And then you get to see the fighters that keep stringing along. And I know a lot of fighters that get a cortisone shot every week in a different ailment. I know some fighters who are in their late 40s and they can't really form great sentences. And then I know fighters that have been fighting since they were young and are very articulate when they speak and are great. Um, I didn't want to... to to do this for too long, you know, too much victory and, and, you know, you're in the losing end of life. So once I told myself, once the injuries piled up, you know, I would take my leave and, and that would be that. The one thing that a lot of fighters can't or don't understand or, or can't grasp is it's not a profession. Um, you can do it for, for as long as you can, but you have to know when to get out. Um, the catch 22 side of it, and there was a fighter uh, who was phenomenal. He was a great amateur career, great pro career. He was 6-0 and as a pro. Once you get 6-0 and as a pro, you're going to start going against people who are, are nationally recognized and real good. And he couldn't compete with those people because he had a full-time job as well. So you have to decide, do you train full-time and put all your chips into fighting, or do you retire? This guy chose to continue with his career and he made the right decision I think um, but it's just one of those things if you're not all in it's it's almost damn near impossible so at that point uh, the injuries were piling up and uh, I was ready for more of like a family life you know so that was it was a great run and as long as I could still train I was happy with it so, I was just gonna say yeah. so after your retirement uh, you decided to start taking you you took on more of a coaching role yes um, and like that led to you having your own gym for a little bit your mm -hmm. own and then teaching out of my facility for a little bit yeah. and then you still come in and train with us and you still come in and help the guys yes um, kind of what 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 was that like, kind of doing the, doing, being on the opposite end of it, knowing what you know now? 
It was both rewarding and frustrating. Um, the big thing is I was coaching jiu-jitsu since I was, you know, 16, 17. And as an MMA coach, the whole time I was fighting, I was coaching guys. I was a good fighter and I was a tremendous coach. Uh, phenomenal coaching. So something I always perceived as a, a negative was being unathletic, but as a coach, what got me to win a lot of the fights was the technique. So if I could instill my technique or my brain power to these fighters that were athletic specimens, they would do phenomenal, and that's, and that's what happened. Um, but the big thing you get as a coach in martial arts nowadays is everything worth doing takes time and dedication. And most people off the street want to be good today. They want to know everything today. Um, instant gratification. Instant gratification, which is the absolute killer of, of dedication. And as I said before, it's probably the number one thing you need is dedication, lack of ego. You know, um, Some people can learn it instantly. Some people, it takes months. Uh, so what was frustrating to me was trying to instill like uh, that old school sense of discipline in these people. You know, they just wanted to fight. And because I was in the UC, they thought I can take them. You know, there's people in the gym and they want to do MMA. They want to take an MMA fight in one week, you know. And uh, I was very particular with who I would corner or train. You kind of had to meet my standard of, of training and coaching. Um, because if I'm going to put my seal of approval on you, like you have to be able to go in there and defend yourself, you know? Absolutely. So that was very frustrating to see like the new uh, kind of era of fighters being so needing that instant gratification. Definitely. Um, we can bring up uh, two kind of like main fighters that you coach that made professional kind of, and one making his current return. Um, uh, we'll bring him up. We'll give him a little shout out so that way he could he could throw us uh, throw us some uh, praise later. Of course, uh, our, our man, the dude, uh, Malik. Or uh, for those of you guys who listen, Frankie. Most of you guys know uh, he is making his return back. Um, I know he has done a pre lot of previous training with you. Um, are you helping him out, making that return back into it, or are you just a training partner? And that's kind of like where you're at with this one for. For our, our, our man, Frankie. Number one, I love you, Frankie, but he is giving me gray hairs. Um, <laughs> Second child, huh? Yeah, I thought I thought we were done with the fighting, and uh, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm going back at it. I'm like, shit. <laughs> Bringing you back out of retirement, uh, too. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm helping him any way I can, but I'm just a training partner for this one. Uh, unfortunately, with work, my son, it's just, it's not, I don't have the free time to kind of do what I, I, used, I to used to do. Uh, luckily, he's been in the game long enough to where he knows, and I'm just kind of helping him finally tune it. Um, but he is one of those people, like I said, that has, uh, he has dynamite in his hands. When he hits, uh, when I would do pads for him a lot, and when he hits the pads, you would swear there was like a chunk of, of rock or granite hitting the pads. It's something you can't teach. The way he throws his hip into each punch, it's it's phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I came up into the game as a grappler. And 
most people are going to try to take Frankie down because of his hands being so good. So that's what I was always able to do. Well, if you do this, me as a grappler, I would do that. And it kind of helps him see both ends of the spectrum. Definitely. Kind of um, like like you said before, yin and yang with your other, your other training partner. Yes. You two can kind of work that way. Yes. Um, and before we start getting to the closure statement, um, I want to go over my – and Jimmy loves when I tell this story – my first experience meeting Jimmy, he always gets a big smile on his face and he puts his head down. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, it, when he embarrassed me in my own gym. <laughs> so I invited Jimmy to my MMA gym uh, to train him and his guys. I wanted to. I was looking to do an MMA fight, and I figured what better group of guys to surround myself with to see kind of like where I was at. Well, Jimmy coming to my gym, I. I'm not going to lie, I had a slight little ego. I was like, I'm not going to let this dude whoop my ass in my own gym. Well, that didn't go as planned. <laughs> the amount of times I was thrown and stared at the ceiling and him smiling, laughing, and singing to me as he punched me in the face for a solid five-minute round was might have been the most demoralizing thing to happen with me in my own gym. But gave me a hug after, told me I did awesome after he just punched me in the face for five minutes and, like... And then we continued to train after that. His guys would come over all the time. We would have big training partners. But, like, always just, even even bringing them in today, like, it's just the, the, probably one of the most humble martial artists I've met for MMA-wise, karate-wise. Just, he's just a guy who just enjoys to train and, and, and enjoys to be around. He's just funny to be around. He's always going to bust your balls, and he's always going to make sure we're having fun while we're training. You remember that time there, Jimmy? So the big thing... <laughs> I used to love training, and sparring was like dancing for me. I used to have so much fun. So I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I used to constantly sing during sparring, you know? And it was it was just, I was just, it was like dancing for me, you know? <laughs> so people be like, man, why were you singing to me? I'm like, ah, my bad, my bad. <laughs> as, he's, as he's on top of me and whispering sweet, sweet nothings in my ear, I'm like, oh, this isn't how I planned for my Saturday morning to go. But to be fair, on Kyle's part, he was trying to hit me, so I was just trying to aggressively hug him, and he was being a real dick about it. <laughs> fair enough. Before, uh, before we close, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the whole, like, um, Logan Paul, Jake Paul... YouTube star taking these big fights for big purses like do you think that is kind of demeaning the sport or is it kind of helping to bring more attention obviously it's boxing yeah but is it bringing more attention to the sports or is it kind of demeaning what um, professionals are doing the great question and it's it's a catch-22 um like obviously Connor made a ton of money a ton doing this same shit but that's Connor McGregor yes and one thing the thing you have to realize is fighting is not, you know, uh, for it's for everyone. It's not, uh, it doesn't exclude anyone. So, having said that, there are a million hungry fighters out there that bust their ass every day in the gym. And when they fight, they make $100, $200. Just enough to kind of eat ramen noodles and and that's about it it's very tough for starting out fighters extremely tough very uh very un uh unwelcoming start having said that the paul brothers were were good athletes they were good wrestlers and 
they are very good boxers from what I've seen their training very good good uh, fast twitch muscle fibers and what people don't understand and why they're excluding them was because of their YouTube star history path but what you have to understand is these brothers have an unlimited supply of money and nothing but free time so they're getting great training partners great coaches they have athletic backgrounds and I want Ben Askren to win so yeah, bad, <laughs> but he's not. And uh, so that's you. You kind of brought up a good point there because they have an unlimited supply of money. Mm -hmm. So most fighters are responsible for their own camps. Yes. So if you're amateur or even you know when you were in the UFC, what you make per fight was significantly less than what it is now since it's blown yes. up. So how how does that really help them going forward? Because they have that unlimited supply of money. They're not in the same. Obviously, Ben Askren has done well. Yes. But he's not Logan Paul money. No. Or Jake Paul money, I mean. And uh, when you are an amateur, you have, uh, you probably have a full-time job. And so you have, when you get home, say you work 40 hours, you know, you have only a few hours of the day. And if you're, you're an average everyday Joe, you only have so much income to put towards training. Keep in mind, when you win that fight, you get a congratulations and that's it. You don't win any money. So uh, it's tough for up and comers to kind of section that. And that's why I think, you know, MMA in this area really hasn't taken off because of our, uh, you know, low socioeconomic area. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you just live dirt poor and then train full time, you are putting all your chips into this. Now, me, myself, when I started, I put all the chips in. Now, you are so unknowledgeable at that point with nutrition. Um, you know, you kind of have to make your own training. Your coaches can't really put too much stock in you at that point because they have other students other professionals so you have to do research on your own and it doesn't matter how much research you do you're probably gonna be wrong you know looking back on it I was wrong about a tremendous amount of stuff um, but now these guys that have unlimited amount of bank account they're able to get coaches get nutritionists get all this stuff so do I think they're gonna be successful in the fight game a hundred percent if they put the time in and they put their resources into it I think it's going to be phenomenal. Now, is he going to beat Ben Askren? Absolutely. But he wanted to challenge a fighter. If you look at Ben Askren's MMA career, and keep in mind, Ben Askren is an elite, phenomenal mixed martial artist. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. His boxing skills at 1 to a 10 would probably be a 2. There's a reason, Paul challenged Ben Askren and took the fight against Ben Askren. It's it's an easy matchup yeah. for him. It's not um, like he challenged Stephen Wonderboy Thompson who's going to outstrike him no. and pick him apart from a, uh, like that way. It was a very good strategic move on Paul's part. Now, with, and with, with the flip side of that though, with his brother fighting Floyd. Floyd Mayweather. So That's with madness. Madness. <laughs> but here's the thing is one brother is going to beat the brakes off Ben Askren. He's going to make a ton of money. Ben Askren is going to make a ton of money. Oh, yeah. Now, you fight Floyd Mayweather, you're going to get beat. 
But you know what you're going to do? Make a ton of money. You're going to make a ton of money. Yeah. So people can hate on them as much as they want. Um, it's something that I didn't really know until later on in my fight career, but it's a business. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you like someone to. offering you to fight Tyson right now. Of Would course. you go fight Tyson for $100 million? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'll sign on the dotted line. I, know, I just saw him hitting pads not long. Listen, ago. Listen, I'll go to sleep real. Rough. I'll go to sleep real quick. I, <laughs> yeah. have, I, I got one or two like liver shots I can yeah. take. I think as long as he doesn't kill you, you know. That's yeah, it. I'll go to sleep real quick. Yes, but business wise, it's phenomenal. I know I'm gonna watch both fights Absolutely. because that's what people want. You know, they kind of want to see the the out of the norm, the out of the cookie cutter fights, yeah. and I think that'll be that'll that might be a good great. idea for the Patreon. There you go. A little unofficial uh, fight companion. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah, awesome. yeah. We can talk about it. We can sit there and talk about it. We got yeah. no problem with that. Yes. That's awesome. bring, bring Chris on, too. I'm sure he'll love to good, talk about good it. Good luck in him on. Good luck. Oh, I'll twist his arm just as much <laughs> as I'll twist yours. <laughs> All right. I might have to do a little more than Lions Brewery yes. on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jimmy, anything you want to give for us closing statements there? Uh, no, that's about it. Um, any other questions you got for me? Uh, no, we went through my whole notepad. We're still going to come up with like a tagline for the end or something. So we got to figure something out. Like, you know, what's your favorite like local pizza shop or some shit? Yeah. Like, we got to figure something out that we get every... Uh, Jimmy, what is your local favorite pizza shop? Oh, Shelly's in Luzerne. All right, fair enough. That's good. Now, Tell me you're going to get the pepperoni uh, on top of it. I get either the buffalo wing pizza, which is my favorite... And it's one of those things where I eat the whole pie in one sitting, <laughs> and then I don't move the rest of the day. Or I get the sausage, and KJ helps me a little bit. I was just going to say, yeah. little man, I got to yeah. help you out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, Jimmy, uh, thank you. I appreciate your time coming in for uh, episode two of uh, NEPA Inspired. Again, my name is uh, Kyle Reed. I'm here with Chad Vale, and uh, we're ready to rock and roll for episode three next week. Thanks again for having me, guys. Thanks, buddy.